When you post hunting photos on Instagram, they get censored. When you post on Go Wild, you get virtual fist bumps from fellow hunters. When you buy gear on Amazon, you gas up a billionaire spaceship. When you buy gear on Go Wild, we donate to a camp that teaches kids to hunt, fish, and shoot. See the difference? Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join today at DownloadGoWild.com, and I'll give you 10 bucks just for setting up your account. And you'll keep unlocking Go Wild rewards as you share content, because guess what? We like hunting pictures. Join at DownloadGoWild.com or in the App Store. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Happy Thursday, everyone. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, Conservation Month rolls on, and we've got a good one for you today. Today, I'm joined by Whit Fosberg, and Whit is the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or as many people know it by, just TRCP. Uh, Whit and I get to really touch on all things TRCP related and conservation related. Um, I got to to get a really good understanding of how TRCP operates um, and really what the the partnership aspect of the organization looks like and all the different partner organizations uh, that they are working with to try to help them uh, advance um, their specific uh, organization's missions and how TRCP can help them along with that. Uh, we also get also get to uh, kind of get a little bit of a background with Wit in, in terms of, you know, growing up in New York, you know, what the outdoors looked like to him growing up and, you know, why it was that he decided to make a career uh, out of the outdoors and, you know, some of the things that he's done over time. And, you know, we also get to discuss, you know, how the, the landscape of conservation has changed uh, over uh, his over the course of time that he has been uh, involved, and he does a, a really good job of articulating that. So I am going to let you guys listen to that. So episode 74 with Fosberg, TRCP. Uh, enjoy. Before that, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our, well, our partners and my good friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee, Sammy and Marshall. And if you guys have not already, you guys have to give this stuff a try. Uh, I've been getting messages uh, through social media and whatnot about people who have, have you know, made the switch or have tried it and have 
you know, been frankly disappointed when they have to drink something other than Wild Rivers. Uh, at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So go to wildriverscoffeeco.com and order your fresh roasted beans, handmade mugs, and a ton of sweet merchandise as well as accessories for uh, pour over and all that good type of stuff, however you want to enjoy your coffee. Uh, if you subscribe today, uh, you're going to save 10% off your order. Or uh, if you use the code, this is all caps, fish underscore wildlife, you're going to save 10% off your order as well. So head on over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, today I'm honored to welcome into the podcast the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or TRCP, Mr. Whit Fosberg. Whit, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Marcus? I'm doing well. We uh, we overcame some technical difficulties uh, to kind of get the ball rolling here. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, to get uh, a chance to finally speak. Yeah, well, I uh, appreciate you reaching out and being on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> this is, for me, this is kind of one of those concert, uh, conversations uh, that I've been looking forward to. I know we had uh, scheduled this a few weeks back, um, but I think, you know, anyone who's really... Um, kind of up to date with conservation uh, across the U.S. You know, TRCP is a name that certainly, you know, stands for something uh, with the work that you guys are doing kind of across the entire landscape um, of conservation. So to kind of kick things off here, what kind of give me, uh, if you can, a, a background, a bit of a history uh, of TRCP and, and also, you know, what the mission is. Sure. Um, so this goes back to the organization was created in 2001 by a fellow named Jim Range. And Jim had been uh, chief counsel for Senator Howard Baker when Baker was majority leader of the Senate back in the 80s under Reagan. And Jim and Howard Baker were both from rural Tennessee and grew up hunting and fishing, great conservationists. And Jim became increasingly frustrated while he worked on the Hill about what he felt was the waning influence of the hunting and fishing community. He had the environmental community moving further right, um, excuse me, moving further left, becoming more affiliated with the Democratic Party, becoming more litigious. You had the gun community moving further right, becoming more Republican-leaning, uh, more litigious. And he just thought that that sensible center that had always been occupied by the sporting community had been lost. And you can go all the way back to the you know, Theodore Roosevelt's time. It was really the sportsman in this country that created the modern conservation system from ending the market hunting, to creating the early environmental laws, to setting aside public lands, to then you know creating the organizations that brought species back from the brink. Um, the downside of that over time is we became so diffuse and there's so many critters out there that had groups after them that the community lost that collective focus on Washington DC and the federal policy that underlies you know, all of our conservation in this country. And uh, so TRSP was created with the mission of guaranteeing all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. And the idea was to bring together all the hunting and fishing groups, conservation groups that were doing great work out there to speak on a common voice on the issues that were too big for any one of them. Public land policy, energy policy, you know, farm bill, you know, fisheries policy, you know, things like that. And, uh, 
Yeah, today we have 61 different organizations under the umbrella of the partnership and, uh, you know, broken down into sort of five key working areas. And it's the coalition of the willing. Nobody pays dues to be here. Uh, all we ask is they roll up their sleeves and agree to participate in working groups and be, you know, part of the solution. And, it, you know, there are hiccups along the way, but it works pretty well. Yeah, so how exactly I was... I've obviously been on the website numerous times, but how you know how do those partnerships work? Uh, work because obviously uh, there's a lot of uh, very uh, species specific uh, organizations yep. that are in the partnership there. So how um, do you guys? How does that partnership work? So first of all, it's definitely the coalition the willing. I mean, we're going to disagree on certain things, and uh, may not be uh, Fez's forever's highest priority is not marine fisheries policy. But I think there's an understanding that we're going to work together in the areas we really care about and you know, try to add our collective muscle together. And then also there's a real value in being engaged in something that isn't your issue because it may not be your issue today, but it might be your issue next week. And you're going to want the broad community supporting you on that because, you know, in the past, you know, when I mean, one of Jim's real frustrations was. You know, when going got tough, our community would you know, scatter like a covey of quail. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we need to stick together, even if it's not a mule deer issue, even if it's not a trout issue or a striped bass issue or an elk issue. And uh, it is in that, you know, collective muscle that willing to weigh in on something that may not be in your core competency that adds weight to our community. Yeah. And, you know, I've had a lot of guests on, um, and one that really sticks out to me is the executive director for 2%, uh, Jared Frazier. And, you know, how he talks about, you know, all of us as conservationists, sportsmen, sportswomen, all coming together for really the, the entire betterment of, you know, the outdoors of, of you know, wild places and, and wild animals. And, you know, what maybe, uh, you know, RMEF is doing for elk. Uh, also has an effect on, you know, mule deer or turkeys or quail or pheasant. So having that united front across the entire landscape, um, like you said, I think it it absolutely gives us uh, a much stronger position uh, as it pertains to really all of the outdoors. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, our community tends to be so insular looking a lot of the time. I mean, you know, if you're the Mule Deer Foundation, you are focused 24-7 on what's What's going to be best for mule deer? And you may not be thinking about a lot of those other species. And, you know, but you know, we die that, you know, that death of a thousand cuts because, you know, it's, if it's not your species, then, you know, okay, it's not my issue. And, you know, we've just got to get past that mindset that we're all in this together and, you know, we sink or swim as a community. And we've been doing well with that. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right with the, with the sink or swim because, I mean, in this day and age with the way, I guess, uh, social media is and, and the, the reach that so many, you know, so many people have anymore. Um, it can only just take one kind of bad apple to really sour uh, a lot of people who may be, uh, I guess, indifferent or just, you know, unfamiliar with uh, certain topics that uh, pertain to the outdoors, even if they are, you know, someone who regularly, regularly participates. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that you look at this, you like, you know, for example, fighting the pebble mine in Alaska. All right, that's a core issue to, you know, Trout Unlimited, Wild Salmon Center. You know, it may not be as core issue to, you know, some of the other groups, especially on the hunting side. But I think that, you know, they are smart enough to recognize that, okay, maybe Pebble Mine today, but maybe it's the Missouri Breaks, you know, later on, which is, you know, just world-class, you know, mule deer, elk habitat. 
and maybe not the best, you know, trout fishing. And, you know, we need to step out of our comfort zone and help the broader community. Yeah, absolutely. That's very well put. So how does one kind of find themselves uh, in your position? You know, I mean, what did your journey look like uh, from being introduced to the outdoors to, you know, where you're at now? So, you know, basically I, I spent quite a bit of time, you know, trying to figure out how I could get actually paid for something I love to do. I grew up <laughs> in the uh, woods of upstate New York, right against the Vermont, Massachusetts border. We really didn't have any neighbors. My dad had a wood lot there. We had a trout stream that ran through the property. And so my brother and I, you know, we literally were you know, playing in the outdoors every day and, uh, you know, had, you know, flyer rods in our hands with typically worms on the ends of them you know, as little kids. And, you know, we got old enough not to shoot each other with a shotgun. We started trekking <laughs> through the woods, you know, trying to find the occasional grouse with each of us taking turns playing bird dog, you know, pushing through the brambles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just something that I think was core to who we were. And, you know, I went and, you know, went to college and, have, you know, and got an international relations government degree. But you know, at the end of four years of college, still felt I knew as much or more about, you know, forests and wildlife as I did about geopolitics. So I got my first job out of college as, you know, working for the National Audubon Society in D.C. as a sort of a baby lobbyist and, you know, a writer. And, you know, that then I decided to go back and get professional education, went and got a you know, degree in forestry as my master's degree. And uh, but struck, you know, structured the whole thing. So I go back and work on policy in Washington and I spent five years working in the U.S. Senate for a guy named Tom Daschle, who was a Democrat out of South Dakota. Uh, great guy, ended up being majority leader, and I handle all of his energy and environment portfolio, which not only sort of really taught me how Congress works, but also, you know, sort of me a big swath of issues from, you know, mining in the Black Hills to farm bill issues to ethanol to pheasant issues, you know, so it was, it was a great learning experience. And from there, I went on and ran uh, the fisheries program at the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and started giving away grants for you know, fisheries projects around the country and happened to give Trout Unlimited one of its first foundation grants and got to become good friends with their CEO and ended up coming over and you know, working at TU for 15 years on both the conservation side as well as by the time I left, I was overseeing all the fundraising because you know, money, you know, money makes the whole thing work. Right. So, you know, that was my journey. And then 10 years ago, uh, in 2009, Jim Range, uh, who is the chairman of the board of TRCB, but really called all the shots, uh, finally was complaining about back pains, and he was a friend and lived in my neighborhood, and he finally went to the doctor, and it was kidney cancer, and he was dead within a month. Oh, wow. And so the organization was sort of the sink or swim time uh, about whether TRCP would grow beyond the, the cult of its founder to a real long-term sustainable organization. And at that time, you know, I'd, I'd been at TU for 15 years. I loved it. But, you know, it was it was time for me to make a change, too. So I went and did this, and and I enjoy the rebuild part of, you know, doing it. Um, we did that at TU when I came in, in the mid-'90s and and then did the same thing with TRCP, and it's been a great ride. Yeah, so you came over in 2010. So being there for a little over a decade, you know, how how have you seen the conservation landscape really change during that during your time there? Honestly, I think we are have more influence today you know, than we've ever had, you know, save you know, in the early 1900s. I think that the community has figured out that it gets a lot more stuff done when it's unified 
I think we have managed to position conservation and hunting and fishing. When I say we, I mean the broad community, not just here at CP, as something that's not a partisan issue. And it's something that, you know, Democrats, Republicans, rural, urban can agree on. And I think that you've seen in the last you know, several years from the Obama years to the Trump years to, you know, early on in the Biden administration, a lot of the big things that are getting accomplished are getting accomplished in our areas. And I think that's not accidental. I think that's because our community has stood up and is making its voice heard in a pragmatic, practical, non-threatening way. And uh, I just think that, you know, people now look to us on both sides of the aisle, that what we think on an issue, and, and listen, we're going to, we don't agree everything, you know, that goes down, but, you know, I think the folks know that we're going to be an honest broker, that we're going to say it like it is, we're going to let science guide us and not politics. And we have a whole bunch of groups and a lot of grassroots folks out there to back us up. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, but, you know, why do you think it is that in this day and age um, that we have become more unified than in, you know, previous generations or, you know, administrations, you know, kind of however you want to look at it? Do you think it's just, uh, well, I guess I have my theory uh, or my my thought on it, but I, I'd like to certainly get your take as to, you know, why you think maybe we're in this, you know, kind of a, a good position from a from a conservationist, uh, you know, outdoorsman standpoint. Well, I think there are a few things behind it. I think, first of all, the majority of folks that get elected to Congress, despite what you read in the headlines, are there for the right reasons. They want to solve problems. They want to, you know, do legislation they don't want to just be hacks right and i think that we provide an opportunity for them to do that uh second i think that our community you know really going back to the whole selling off of public lands flexed its muscle so when you saw the you know that movement back in the no oh, probably was eight you know plus years ago now that was gaining steam around the west to get rid of public lands to you know sell them off outright or to transfer them to the states that really came to a crescendo um, when you know Jason Chaffetz at that time was a congressman out of Utah put in a bill to sell off 3.3 million acres to help balance the budget, and it wasn't you know the environmental community that went apoplectic about that one. It was dudes showing up at his town halls in blaze orange and camo, <laughs> and uh, you know that was a whole different dynamic. I mean, finally our community has stood up for something other than gun rights, and I'm all favor of gun rights. But, you know, when it came to conservation, they were willing to have that same passion, that same energy and hold people accountable. And I think you saw the dynamic on that one. And, and we had been warning about it for years at that point. We had a website built, you know, unlocking public, you know, I forget what it was, sportsmansaccess.org. And, uh, you know, we, had, we were all set. We had a petition waiting to go. And then he drops this bill and it was like mono from heaven. And uh, it was just perfect because we were there. The community was engaged. We had a bunch of corporate supporters behind it. And all of a sudden, here's what we had been saying for several years, that this was coming down the pike, and it wasn't just a bunch of kooks. This was becoming a mainstream idea that we had to crush, and we had to crush it hard. And it ended up being that you know, Chaffetz you know, withdrew his bill formally in Congress and then resigned from Congress. And since then, you have not, you've seen a few of the fringe elements there talking about these things. But now public lands is an issue that Republicans and Democrats are running on in Western states and not running against it, but running for it. And I think that, you know, that was one incident where the community you know, proved it was willing to put up um, if, you know, worse came to worse. And I think that had ramifications that continue to this day. 
Now, we haven't had to really do that since then because there hasn't been that level of a threat on something. So now we're in a position where we can focus on things that we're for and not just things that we're against. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the most important things, uh, especially from I guess like a, a policy side of things, is is being on the off you know offensive instead of the defensive, um, you know not having to uh, react and be able to be more proactive um, with certain things. But you're you're absolutely right. I remember uh, when that bill was introduced and really kind of everything that came with it. I mean, there was you're right. There was just this uproar of you know people from from both sides that for the first time, it seemed like could, you know, kind of come to an agreement on something because like you said, we hadn't seen something like that before. Um, and I, I think it really kind of shook a lot of people that, uh, you know, maybe didn't quite know that something like that was possible, you know? Right. Yeah. And I just think it was a galvanizing moment for our community and empowering and folks realized that golly, you know, that really worked. Okay, maybe maybe we can have an influence on what happens there. We're not just going to sit back and take, you know, what is given to us. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think so many people, especially when it comes to politics, right, is a lot of people have the the mindset is, you know, especially if it feels like a lot of the younger generation, um, you know, what does my one vote count? Uh, you know, it's not going to make a difference, you know, especially – like, let's just, if you just look at like a broad level, like the presidential election where a lot of states are, you know, red or blue and it's, you know, for a lot of cases, it's kind of predetermined uh, or, you know, it's a foregone conclusion on which way the state's going to go. But when the younger generation can see a success uh, from voicing their opinions on something that they're passionate about, I think it almost changes their their whole outlook uh, on politics and the way that they're their voice is heard or viewed or, you know, how it uh, can actually do some good. And, and, you know, I guess the the American political system, you know, is is doing what it's supposed to do or what they have been told it's supposed to do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the the greatest fear is, you know, cynicism. And if you think that doesn't matter, you don't want to engage and it's never mattered. I mean, that's just wrong. And, you know, that is how we're going to get screwed eventually if people stop caring and stop showing up and stop making their voices heard. And it was, okay, maybe one person, it doesn't change everything, but you know, one person there, one other person there, another person there. And soon you're talking to a couple thousand people at a town hall meeting, you know, saying they're damned angry about this stuff. Or, you know, all of a sudden they're calling the Senator's office or they're writing letters or they're showing up on their, when their member is back home on a you know, work weekend and showing up and, you know, not threatening them, but talking to them and saying, hey, this is important to me. How come we can't get this done? And you'd be surprised at how influential that is. I mean, members of Congress, and that is you know, true in state legislatures, too, would far rather hear from a real person who lives in their district, who cares about this stuff genuinely, than from a team of lobbyists in D.C. And, you know, so, I mean, I stress that whenever I talk to folks is that, you may not think you're making a difference, but you're making a big difference. And we can all make a difference in some fashion. Some people are more comfortable about cleaning up trash from a stream. That's great. Others, you know, weighing in on a, a policy issue. And But, you know, the key is that we all engage in something. Yeah, and I think what you've seen a lot of uh, organizations do in recent years um, with bills and things like that that have been brought to uh, is, you know, providing um, – numbers for representatives in your state to call to voice your opinion. Um, I mean, they've made it very easy for their members 
to to get involved and to voice their opinion. And I think that with uh, you know a lot of the the, the demographic of a lot of these organizations being on the younger side, it um, it makes it very easy for their members to do. And I think that's, you know, that's uh, certainly beneficial um, to to getting something done in that regard. Yep. Totally agree. No. So how was it or I guess what at what point in your life did you realize that, you know, the outdoors uh, was really what you wanted to make a career out of? I know you you kind of you kind of joked that you, you tried to figure out a way to, uh, you know, to get paid to do what you love. But what was it or at what point did you figure out, okay, this is what I love and this is what I want to do? You know, I think early on I was always interested in you know, politics and government and, you know, sort of civic engagement. And I remember, you know, my dad died when we were young and, you know, my mom and my brother and I would like every night would watch the news while we'd eat dinner. And so we were sort of well-informed as kids and I, I just really – enjoyed that you know like our class trip to washington dc in ninth grade you know i can still remember it it was great meeting with congressmen and you know, we were like asking them hard questions on the issues of little ninth graders but you know that kind of thing you know it made a difference and I, so i decided i wanted to be in you know public policy and so that's why i went to georgetown university in dc you know that's why i was a government major but when it came to the time like okay i've, I've got my degree now what do i do with it you know trying to figure out a way, you know, it was like something I was really passionate about was still, you know, you know, wild lands, wild animals, wild places. And, uh, you know, I was just lucky enough to, you know, bump into a job at National Audubon Society that I think my starting salary that year was 10,000 for the year. I felt very rich. And, uh, yeah, but it was, you know, that was the foot in the door because finally I was, you know, I had two passions. One was, you know, the policy realm and then two was hunting, fishing, the outdoors. And the fact that I could marry those two uh, was, you know, great. And I was willing to, you know, work my way up from, you know, a lowly, you know, associate at Audubon to, you know, running TRCP eventually. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to conservation, the the policy side has always been one that's, I don't want to say it's been a mystery to me, but it's always been one that um, I've known certainly less about, um, you know, and so... From a policy side of things, you know, how is TRCP getting involved? You know, what type of information are they providing? You know, uh, what do relationships look like with with lawmakers? And you know, how much are they actually listening to the input and information that you guys are providing to them? Yeah, so it is. It's a bit. There's a bit of a black box involved with policy. <laughs> Nobody quite understands it. And I've been doing this since 1984, and it's it's still not totally clear with me. But there are a few sort of things that are a fundamental. I mean, one is showing up. I mean, you want to be there. You want to have smart people working for you. And, uh, and you need to become trusted. You can't be you know, one of these groups that you know, plays favorites, that tells one side one thing, another side another thing. That comes back to bite you. And as soon as you get labeled in this town as a, a Democratic or Republican or liberal or conservative, I mean, those pigeonholes are tough to get around. And so, you know, I think our tenant for you know, my staff here and for our work is, you know, be factual, be responsive, you know, follow the science and uh, make sure that our partners are with us. And then, you know, we want to be as much service as we can to the folks that are trying to do a good job in terms of policy. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the whole talk right now is about, you know, an infrastructure bill. And you know, a lot of people think of infrastructure as you know bridges and highways, 
but you know we're trying to been working to define that much more broadly. And we see infrastructure as a working wetland, you know, that captures water, that cleans it, so a downstream you know city doesn't flood, or a barrier island, you know, that blocks that hurricane from coming into Louisiana. Um, it could be you know much better you know, managed forests as we think about you know climate impacts. But anyway, so we you know created a coalition. You know, a couple of years ago, as we knew infrastructure was being one of those things that whether we had another Trump administration or a Biden administration was one of those things that was apt to move. So we created this coalition called Conservation Works for America, built a website, you know, built a whole, you know, another website on what, what natural infrastructure means so that not only, you know, our partners, you know, the folks in the field or a grassroots member or somebody who listened to this podcast can go and learn about what we're talking about. But also, honestly, to help those Hill offices, they're trying to come up with ideas when their bosses say, yeah, let's go ahead and draft an infrastructure bill and let's be good on the environment. And the extent that we can help feed those ideas to members of Congress that are doing this drafting and provide honest feedback that they know is not slanted one way or another, because we're trying to create durable conservation that lasts regardless who is in power, then I think we play a real service there. And I think that, you know, we have a really good team in our, you know, D.C. office that is up on the hill a lot. We have good relationships. They know that if they have a question, they can call us and they're going to get a straight answer, and whether they like it or not. And I just think that if you sort of have those basic principles of being there and being honest and being factual and being responsive, you're going to get good stuff done. Yeah, it's almost... I mean, the, the things that you just, you know, mentioned right there about what you guys try or what you guys strive to do as an organization. I mean, those are like, you know, those are, you know, fundamentals of, of being a good person in general. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that sometimes you have to, um, you know, watch out for others that are not, especially when it comes to, you know, issues like wildlife and, and habitat and, you know, things that shouldn't cause people to, kind of speak out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, this is, yeah, this is not rocket science. This is about <laughs> basic decency and it's about doing your job and showing up to work every day and having, you know, some good principles behind you. And then, but really helps to be very, you know, transparent with our partner groups. I mean, this is what we're, we ask of you. And uh, here's what we're going to, you know, here's what we, you can expect from us. Yeah. And I think that that we that way we avoid you know conflicts with our partner groups because they understand that there are going to be issues that we're out there speaking on behalf of TRCP. If I'm speaking on behalf of Ducks Unlimited, then I'm sure as hell going to get their permission beforehand before I say that. Right. I mean, we have in addition to the 61 partner organizations, we have 120,000 folks that have signed up as members, donors, supporters of ours, and so we have our own constituency. But it, what it really makes us work at the end of the day is, you know, the fact that we have all these different groups behind us and they all understand the rules and they're all engaged and they all play their play their role, too. Yeah, no, that's great. So speaking of your your membership base, um, you know, how is it that that you guys are you know engaging those members, uh, kind of keeping them abreast of, of everything that you guys are working on? you know, maybe more from a, a big picture as opposed to, you know, maybe work that you guys are trying to do with um, individual, um, you know, species-specific type organizations? Yeah, so we made a decision when I came in, you know, shortly thereafter that, you know, we were going to try to build up that base 
because in the old days, like if an issue was hot, we'd have to go to our partners and say, okay, we've got a hot issue. Uh, can I have your permission that we weigh in on this? And, you know, that's just not how Washington works. I mean, you don't have the luxury of then, you know, waiting a couple of days till they come up with a position on this. So it's like, all right, we're going to build up our own you know, base as well so that if like something bad is going down this afternoon in Congress, I can get, you know, 100 phone calls into an office almost immediately by tapping our own and not having to go through our partners. Now, obviously, we'll let our partners know at the same time. And if they want to engage also, fabulous. But, you know, that was part of the rationale as to why we wanted to develop this, you know, these 125,000, as we have it now, uh, supporters, activists, members, whatever you want to call them. And then also, once we have those folks in the door, I want to keep them informed. I want to keep them educated. I want them to understand what's going on. And uh, because I know we're going to need them at some point, I want to, you know, encourage them to buy a, give us a donation and get a buck knife out of it. You know, so, you know, a lot of those things, you know, so it's all part about, you know, just keeping folks engaged, keeping informed, making it fun. I mean, we try to, you know, sprinkle in, you know, interesting news stories from around the country. We do our weekly, you know, newsletters, as well as, you know, sort of eat your vegetables of what's happening in D.C. right now. Yeah, there's uh, there's I had a guest on uh, maybe four or five months ago that uh, she uh, her her organization uh, her excuse me her company um, donates to TRCP on a on an annual basis, and she said that one of the things that she liked most about TRCP was uh, the transparency as a whole from you know within the organization that with the newsletters you know, uh, the members know exactly what it is that's going on. You know, if you're, if you're donating where that money's going, how that's being used. And I think that as members, that's what we really want, right? We want to understand, um, you know, where I guess that $35 is going or where that hundred dollar donation is going. Um, because if, I mean, we all understand that organizations have overhead, they have, you know, they, they do have bills to pay and, and people to pay to, to continue to do this good work, but they want to know, you know, what projects are they working on? You know, what bills are they lobbying for trying to help get through or whatever the case is. Um, and I think the, the standard that you guys have set forth, you know, not only on the Hill and in DC, but with your membership as well, uh, has certainly kind of, uh, paid dividends, I guess, or it's certainly worked, um, uh, from the feedback that I've gotten. Yeah, and we pride ourselves on that. And I think that just, you know, don't take our word for it. But we have there are three nonprofit rating agencies out there that you know look at you and give you a proctological exam every year, and then <laughs> you know decide you know whether you're worthy or not. And that's you know there's Better Business Bureau, GuideStar, and Charity Navigator. And all three of them, we have their highest ratings, you know, for transparency, for efficiency. Yeah, we have overhead, you know, and we state exactly what it is in there and where it goes to. Um, you know, so anybody who's interested in that, our 990 is on our website, so folks can go and look at our tax returns. I mean, we're not hiding anything. Yeah. And uh, listen, if you don't want to give it to us, that's great. I mean, you're fine. Give it to somebody else. But if you want to, I think, you know, I think we're trying to make the case that we're a good investment. You know, along with, you know, what I don't want to do is have people, okay, give to us, don't give to Trout Unlimited or Ducks Unlimited. I want you to give to everything. Right. I mean, those groups are doing phenomenal work, too. Um, it's just that we, you know, we all have a different role in the broader you know, conservation ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's absolutely true. And I think that's that's for someone who's kind of just getting involved uh, in conservation or maybe just is new to the outdoors. 
that's something that's kind of hard for for the new member to kind of decipher, right? They they want to or they feel like they need to be involved in everything uh, or every group, you know, try to, to donate wherever, the, you know, as much as they can, you know, wherever they can and, and spread it around. And that's, that's certainly um, great uh, for all those parties involved. Um, but I do like the aspect of, you know, finding what you're passionate about, uh, whether it's a species, uh, a region, uh, whatever the case is. And, you know, you know, putting your, your best foot forward with them and making sure that you're doing all that you can for, for that organization as well. Right. And I think there are a lot of folks out there that, you know, sort of, you know, most reflexively, you know, shy away from policy. You know, it's ugly as the sausage making. I'm sick of Washington. And my mind is, we're doing the sausage making so you don't have to. <laughs> so, you know, if you, you can't stand that stuff, great. Don't do it. Help us so we can do it. Yeah. But recognize that it's important and uh, whatever it is you care about, be it you know, pheasant hunting in the Dakotas or trout fishing in Montana or the Appalachians. I mean, federal policy matters. Yeah, absolutely. So how is it uh, as an organization, how do you decide on which issues um, you guys want to, I guess, take a stand on or stand up for aside from, you know, maybe ones that are brought to you by your partner organization or your partner um, groups? Yeah. And even if something is brought to us by our partner groups, we try to run everything through essentially a, a screen. And I think we have like, you know, it's in our strategic plan and uh, I'll, I, it might be on our website. I think it is. But anyway, we call it our criteria screen. So we try to run that through. You know, is it important to the future of hunting and fishing? Is it important to one or more of our partner groups? Uh, do we have the resources to do it well? Are there consequences to saying yes or to saying no? And is there an exit strategy? Um, you know, so there's a series of questions that we look at as we think about a new issue. But, you know, basically, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, and you know, we don't want to do something half-assed. So there are certainly times when a, a partner organization will bring us an issue, we'll help, and, you know, we'll do what we can on it. But it's not going to be a major priority for us. Other times, you know, it's like it is so important, and I'll use an example like, you know, Bristol Bay, you know, and, you know, the Pebble Mine. You know, the consequences of that area being developed and losing those salmon runs or having them, you know, diminished in any way is so substantial that it's certainly worth an investment in our time. And uh, and a bunch of our partner organizations want us to help and we can help. And, uh, you know, basically, it's, and we have a good team that sits around and we talk about the issues. And three times a year, our full policy council, you know, the 61 group sits down and meets. And that's often a time where someone will raise an issue and just say, hey, I want to bring this to the attention of everybody else. Here's something that's going on, you know, down on, you know, the Okefenokee in Georgia. And, you know, we would love to have broader help on this issue. And so that may be a way, you know, an issue gets elevated before us. But, you know, there's no sort of, you know, rote response. But if, listen, if we have the resources and we can help and support in hunting and fishing, we're going to do it. Yeah, no, that's, <clears throat> and that's, that's what I like to hear from organizations is, you know, just doing the right thing. Uh, because while it seems so simple in nature, um, it seems a lot of times that the, the, the real or the answer to that or the answer you get from people is very convoluted. It's very um, messy. It's not straightforward. It's not it's not easy to actually understand the answer that you're being given, um, even though the question was very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just give you one example. I mean, and there are times when, you know, it's such an important issue, you know, that we feel we have to lead and almost bring the community with us. 
And one issue with that was climate. I mean, our community had been hiding in the closet on climate change, you know, essentially since the demise of the cap and trade program in, you know, 2009 with the Waxman-Markey bill in Congress. And, uh, you know, it became, climate became incredibly political and it became Republicans versus Democrats. And, you know, our community tends to lean conservative. And so they just decided the easiest thing to do was just to not even acknowledge it was happening and to just stay as far away from it as possible. But, you know, if you're out in the field, I mean, you recognize it's happening. I mean, migration patterns are changing. You know, we're cold water fisheries are more and more stressed. Elk are coming out of the mountains later. You know, we have ticks moving further north. You know, so it's uh, it's hard to, you know, you know, you know, say it's not happening and to say it's not important for the future of hunting and fishing. So what we did was, you know, we started with the hunting side and brought a bunch of groups together with a key, key set of scientists to really talk about the issue and to talk about, you know, how to talk about it within your organizations. And we had Republican pollsters come and, you know, sort of brief us. But at the end of the day, our community, we were able to convince them, and we brought the broader community together after that to hammer out a multi-page statement we ended up sending to Congress but all of a sudden, instead of something to be scared of, it was an opportunity. It was more land and conservation than the farm bill. It's better managed forests. It's more wetlands. It's more resilient coastlines. I mean, these are all things we're for. And uh, let's frame it in that regard. And uh, you know, if we have good soil health, we're going to be sequestering a lot of carbon. If we have better managed forests, we're going to be sequestering a lot of carbon. Any solution for climate change involves sucking carbon out of the air, and natural systems are the way to do that. And that's what we do. And so we were able to reframe that issue and really get the community behind you know, this. Then all of a sudden, our community gets engaged in it. We become a voice that may persuade you know, moderate to conservative folks out there that this is not something to be scared of. This is not the Green New Deal. This is something that makes a lot of sense. So that's just a long-winded example of one issue that I think our community was phrased, afraid to elevate you know, that we, you know, led on, where there are plenty of others that, you know, they identify the issue, like prairie pothole conservation with Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl, or, you know, you name the issue. And uh, then we come in and figure out how we can help them the best. So it really runs the gamut from being a support role to, you know, playing a lead role. Yeah, and you guys kind of have, I guess, three, um, I guess, kind of main focus areas. Um you know, being habitat and clean water access and then outdoor recreation economy. And, and really, when you, you kind of look at it in, in, in that light, I mean, that covers almost everything, right, as it yeah, kind I mean, of pertains. Yeah. yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we have, you know, I, there's another way, conservation habitat access or another three, you know. And so we can, we can sort of justify doing anything under those broad you know, structures it just has to make sense for the organization. It has to be a high enough priority and we have to be able to basically make a tangible difference. Yeah. So of, of those three, which one do you guys tend to find yourself working on more, whether it's with partner organizations or uh, just internally? I mean, I'd say, you know, it's pretty well divided. Yeah. And I think that, you know, different groups have, you know, different you know, priorities. I think access is always going to be a huge priority for our community. I mean, you know, you see, you know, sort of gradually losing access from suburban sprawl, from changing demographics and Western lands. And you see that becoming a flashpoint. And, you know, just, 
anything that we can do to you know broaden access becomes fundamental to making sure we have that next generation of engaged hunters and anglers to carry the conservation torch forward. And we're not going to go in and change the Montana stream access law or the Colorado stream access law or anything like that. What we're going to do is try to figure out ways to incentivize private landowners to open up you know, some of their private lands to public hunting and fishing or at least to access to that national forest behind it. We're going to try to use you know, things like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is $900 million a year for projects that may buy land or buy easements, target that on even little projects that can open up big landlocked chunks of land. So I think access is fundamental to what we do, and I think everybody cares about that. It doesn't matter if you're a hunter or fisherman, you know, outdoor recreationalist, you know, whatever. The other ones become, you think about, you know, on the habitat side, I mean, obviously we need to have, you know, good habitat if we're going to have good populations of game to pursue. Conservation is things like, you know, how we manage the forage base in marine fisheries to make sure that striped bass, redfish, tarpon have plenty to eat and we're not grinding it up and shipping it abroad. Um, it may be, how do we deal with chronic wasting disease? You know, how do we rein in out-of-control deer farms that are threatening 80% of the hunting industry by you know, spreading this disease around the country? You know, so it's on any given day, any issue may be popping up there, but it's hard to say, you know, which of my children do I prefer the most? I mean, <laughs> these, are, these are all incredibly important issues for you know, the future of hunting and fishing. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of the future, uh, obviously we're kind of coming out of, um, you know, the, the pandemic, the last 18 or so months where uh, it certainly had an effect. Um, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of different people kind of in the conservation arena where some people uh, were affected, um, you know, negatively. Some had a, a positive influence depending upon what they were doing. You know, how has that really affected the work that you guys are trying to do as an organization? Well, I think the first thing that the pandemic did was remind people how important getting outside, yes. public lands, Absolutely. all that is. I mean, that was what recreation became. I mean, you couldn't go to the bar. You couldn't go to the movie theater. You couldn't go to the mall. I mean, you were going out and hanging out in the national park, and you were rediscovering boating and fishing and hunting. And so in a perverse way, you know, the pandemic has been great for us because so many more folks have rediscovered or discover for the first time, you know, what's out there. And maybe I'm hoping that we can find a way to, you know, keep them engaged and keep them as advocates for us. Because there's no question, you know, that there are a lot of people discovered it who had not discovered it before. Yeah, that's, and that's kind of what I had heard. I heard uh, that a lot of um, companies, brands, organizations uh, that kind of had something to offer, whether it was, you know, a good or service, um, certainly, um, I guess I hate to say benefited from a word like pandemic, but they certainly saw, uh, an uptick, uh, in things, but then obviously there was some organizations that, uh, you know, maybe membership numbers were a bit down because the, you know, their normal or their regulars weren't able to kind of re up at banquets or, uh, trade shows or, or anything like that, that they maybe traditionally relied on in the past, but, I think I think something like that, and you know, Wick, correct me if I'm wrong here, and someone who's been in this arena for for longer than I have, that the membership it seems like that would, with a given a year, eighteen months like we just had, that that'll bounce back, right? That'll 
those numbers will come back. Uh, but it's getting those people involved for the first time that's almost more important. Yeah, and I don't. I think you're exactly right. The way you framed it is exactly right. No, I don't want to minimize the pain that a lot of groups had over the past couple of years. I mean, the groups that really were based on a a banquet model of funding were really impacted. Yeah. I mean, Becky Humphreys, who runs the National Wild Turkey Federation, is on my board and chairs our policy council. And you know, they had a really tough time. I mean, they had to you know lay off a bunch of people. They had to reduce salaries. Because all of a sudden, just the spigot of their funding was turned off. And I think the same is true with Ducks Unlimited. Um, you know, they were bigger. They were able to absorb it more. But I think there was a lot of pain around the community. I mean, quality deer management you know, went away and merged into the National Deer Alliance, became the National Deer Association. So there was a, there was a lot of pain in the community that I don't want to minimize and a lot of folks who did not do well. But I think overall, those uh, we're seeing, you know, the past, now that banquets have come back and Howard Vincent runs Pheasants Forever is also on our board. He says, every banquet is sold out. People are so excited about getting back and seeing each other again and getting back to normal that they're expecting a really strong rebound. And I just, we had our big dinner here in D.C. last week and uh, it was smaller than usual. And we'd have 500 people in a normal year. We had 300, which was great because, you know, it wasn't too crowded. But you know, I think, again, people are just so excited to be together. And, you know, our, you know, we didn't do a live auction. We did a silent auction that raised record amounts of money. You know, people were way overpaying for gear, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I just think that there is, I, I totally agree with the thought that things are going to bounce back now in a big way. Yeah. And I just think that people are fired up and they want to get out there and they want to get back to normal. And they, by the way, they love the outdoors. Yeah, and I think that's that's the most important thing is the love for the outdoors and realizing the value behind it because it stares you in the face every day. But until you actually immerse yourself in it to to any degree, really, uh, you don't really know how much you love it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, <clears throat> with just a few more questions here before I let you go. So, this is a kind of a very broad question, but you know, what has been kind of your biggest takeaway? Um, you know, having worked in the the policy and conservation arena for as long as you have, uh, that you can get a lot out of it if you know how to play the game. And but the first part is showing up and going back to what we talked about before about you know being professional, you know, being responsive, being factual, and engaging. But I think that we have, and I think we have also the big takeaway is that what our community, you know, as diverse as it is. You know, from the Mule Deer Foundation to Backcountry Hunters and Anglers to Bonefish and Tarpon Trust to Captains for Clean Water, you know, CCA, TU, we all come together and work together. We are a formidable force uh, that has to be reckoned with. And I think those numbers, it's not just the out part of the, we're such an important part of the outdoor recreation economy, but we're also such an important voice uh, for policy when we choose to use that voice. Yeah. And you know, we'd all rather be talking about tree stand placement or you know, <laughs> decoy spreads or whatever it may be. But you know, we need to talk some about this stuff because you know, doing the things we love depend upon you know, getting this stuff right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what piece of advice would you give someone who is maybe new to the outdoors, whether it's hunting, fishing, you know, backpacking, any type of outdoor recreation um, that – if they want to get involved, right? They want to learn more about conservation. They want to, they want to give back. They want to, you know, get boots on the ground. What, what piece of advice would you give those people? 
Well, I mean, first I'd tell them to you know get informed and uh, do some research. You know, things that they're maybe passionate about in their local area. Chances are there's a conservation group that's doing some good work there. It may be a local land trust. It could be a DU chapter, a Pheasants Forever chapter. It doesn't really matter. I mean, if you engage at that level, you know, that is a great entry point into not only doing the things you love and meeting a lot of cool people that love the same things, but that's also going to give you over time a deeper appreciation of how interconnected all of this is. How a bill that passes in Washington, D.C. impacts a salmon run in Puget Sound. And, you know, so it's just those those connections are not always ready, you know, readily seeable uh, until you immerse yourself in this uh, more than just uh, getting good at the sport, but also thinking about, you know, what it is that, you know, makes this such a phenomenal fishery hunting area, you know, whatever it might be. And how, what can I do to preserve that long term? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very well put. So <clears throat> last thing here before I let you go, you know, I've, I'm going to guess in that a lot of times that you're, you're, you get to speak at events or you get to join people on podcasts, we're talking about a lot of the same things that, that you and I are talking about, right? The policy side of things, the work that TRCP is doing. But I want to ask you a bit more of a personal question. What hunts or fishing trips or anything like that, what do you have planned for the next you know six, seven months uh, that you're really looking forward to? Well, always the, uh, the nice sort of the, the week I look forward to most of any week all year is deer camp in the Adirondacks. All right. And that's not because there's a guarantee to fill the freezer, which rarely happens, but uh, <laughs> it, can't, it happens enough that keeps me interested. But it's just, you know, I love getting out there in the big woods and with my brother and a couple of buddies. And, you know, just it's just one of those things that's a constant in life. You know, at the same time, every year is different, new challenges, new stories to tell. And, you know, I just love the whole deer camp atmosphere. Um, I'm actually going on my first elk hunt ever, you know, flying out to Colorado tomorrow. And uh, I've always resisted it because I, would, I was afraid I would like it too much. And it would <laughs> diminish my appreciation for Easter whitetail hunting. And uh, finally, I've got some board members that twisted my arm enough that, okay, I've broken down. I'm going to do it. And I just, uh, I hope it's not that much of a game changer for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's going to be tough. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, no, I've got that going. And then, you know, I, I always look forward to the beginning of trout season, you know, when I you know, the bugs are hatching on the upper Delaware system in New York, Pennsylvania, or going out. And I was lucky enough to get out with some donors to the South Fork of the Snake in Idaho a couple of weeks ago. And that was phenomenal. You know, so listen, as you know, whenever you're doing something, it's like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just that's what's so cool about what we do is that, you know, there's so much diversity. There's so many different experiences and they're all different. And every time you're doing one, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. No, that's that's the truth. And every time you're out there, it doesn't feel like it can get any better. And then you go out again and you're like, this is way better than the last time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Occasionally we even get a deer. Yeah. yeah. That's good, too. Yeah. Well, Whit, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed hearing more about TRCP, what it is that you guys are doing, you know, all the partnerships and the great work you guys are doing there. Uh, and then best of luck on your outcome. That's going to be exciting. Thank you. Thank you. I'll give you a report. Yeah. Marcus, really, really appreciate you having me on and just uh, you know, putting this out there for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. We'll continue to do the great work that you guys are doing. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right. 
All right. Well, thanks again to Whit for joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Stone Glacier, Wild Rivers Coffee, as well as Go Hunt and 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation driven content so you certainly uh, enjoy that uh, when you're browsing through your feeds Uh, so again if you'd like to learn more about two percent for conservation you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org thanks for joining me this week everyone stay tuned next week where we have another great guest Uh, remember stay safe out there and conservation starts with you